Good morning. Let's go ahead and begin classic prayer. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you for this opportunity to study. We thank you for the, the beautiful sunshine. We thank you for family, for friends. Uh, in this new year, Lord, we, we want to dedicate ourselves to you this year to live lives in harmony with your, with your methods and principles, but even more to, than living lives in harmony, to, to be uh, intelligent and aware of where we are in the, in the, in the flow of history, that we can be uh, active agents in your kingdom to take a, a healing message to the world, to lighten the world for your return. Be with us today as we study that our minds will be drawn to you. We pray in your holy name. Amen. We are doing lesson number three in our quarterly origins, and the title this week is The Creation Completed. And let's jump into Sunday's lesson, and the uh, f- uh, first paragraph states, the, first, the fourth day has probably been discussed more than any of the other six days of creation. If the sun was created on the fourth day, what caused the daily cycles for the first three, day, three creation days? On the other hand, if the sun already existed, what happened on the fourth day? And last week, Russell kind of raised this question last week, but the lesson brought it up this week, and the lesson offered three possible solutions to the question. Three possible solutions. They offered the solution, God's presence was a source of light, and therefore for the first three days, the the evening and morning, were were in relation to the earth and God's presence in this part of the, the universe. And that answer is consistent with the scriptures that describe God in all the various places as being uh, living in unapproachable light or, or, or Revelation describes God as uh, being so bright that the new heaven and new earth won't need a sun or moon to light the place because God's presence will be as light. So there, there's a consistency of scripture with that potential explanation. They offer another explanation that the sun, moon, and stars were, quote, appointed to their function. Appointed to their function at that time. Now, I had problems with this explanation. Because think that through. If, if, if day four means that they weren't created on day four, they were just appointed to their function, then does that mean that the photons coming from the sun weren't actually flowing through space for the first three days until they were appointed? And, and you follow my problem with this? Appointed to their function on that day. Or does it mean that they actually weren't shining until the day they were appointed, which means we're back to the same problem. I don't really get this whole appointed to their function business on the fourth day. I don't really get it. I mean, they weren't functioning until they were appointed. So why do we have to say on the fourth day he created the sun, moon, and stars if they were already shining on the first three? I mean, it just doesn't make sense to me. that, that Maybe I'm missing it. I don't know. And then uh, the other explanation they offer is volcanic dust or clouds obscured the view until, the, until day four. I like. To, uh, where's that coming from? Is that coming from the creation account? I didn't get that either. It seems to me that maybe he's trying to merge a little bit of, uh, of some of the constructs of a um, theistic evolution with, uh, with a, a special creation and trying to mix the two together. Yes, Kathy. I think the comment appointed to their function could refer to the concept that it says that they were for seasons and, and maybe that was made known at creation, that they were for... So the sun, the sun, moon, the sun, moon, and planets of our solar system were already here when God created Earth. And Possible that He said that okay. this is this is what they're going to do in the process of the Earth's existence. The other thing with that, my my question would be about saying that the light came from God. That only happens if God is only on one side of the Earth. Yes. So I, I all of them to kind of maybe have a little question. Yes. Um, and then there's another possibility that I thought of was that Moses wrote it the way he wrote it, evening and morning, the first three days, to make absolutely clear to anybody reading it that these were 24-hour Earth time periods. The Earth was rotating at a certain rate, and it was an evening and a morning, and it wasn't extended eons of time that we're talking about here. And so he wrote it this way so people would understand that this first day was 24 hours, the second day was 24 hours, the third day was 24 hours, and, 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 and you know the, the plants that God creates on day three can last 24 hours without sun. They can't last 1,000 years without sun. And so it's still consistent. So one explanation is it's simply a, a, a mechanism where, God, where Moses is writing to make sure people understood this was 24-hour time period. Is that on the other hand somewhere? Tim. I did find it uh, interesting. I was reading that right there, and I was trying to contemplate the possibilities. And in um, Daniel 8.14, where we get the 2,300 days of evenings and mornings, and then you've got evenings and mornings, and it's the same exact words for evenings and mornings in both Daniel 8, 14, and in Genesis 1 and 2. 
that we trans that you can translate to day, and we use that as a prophetic translation, and and in Genesis we use it as a literal translation. So I found that interesting. I don't know what that means. But well, I, I don't think I don't think the wording is, is is the issue there. I think the context in Daniel there's a prophecy being given, and so the days are given a prophetic interpretation. Where in Genesis there's a description of a an event happening, so they're given a literal interpretation. I don't think it has to do with the word evening morning used. I think it has to use the context of when the word was used. So evening and morning could refer to just a part of the twenty four hour cycle, rather than saying and light and dark, which would have been in relation to the sun. He said evening and morning, which could have just referred to, we associate it with the Yeah, but, but if you go take the context, there's also the, the description of light and dark. Mm-hmm. Let there be light, and the darkness, light was, the darkness was separated from the light, and then evening and morning were the first day. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So if it was God's light, are you saying he was there, and then he wasn't, and then he was there, and then he wasn't? What, what do you mean, light and dark? No, uh, we, we discussed this, I think, uh, two weeks ago when we talked about the origin of creation, that on day one, the earth was void and without form in a deep abyss, and darkness covered the face of the deep, and God said, let there be light, and there was light. And um, one explanation for that is that uh, God created the universe billions of years ago, who knows how long ago, billions of you know, times uh, years ago, and according to Job 38, 7, 4 through 7, there were angels that sang together for joy when God created earth. And so that gives us insight that this creation, Genesis 1, is not creation of all life in the universe because the angels are already there. So the universe was there billions of years ago. And earth then is created sometime downstream from the rest of the universe. And so one explanation is that God comes to the corner of the Milky Way where there's a black hole in space and he dissipates a black hole, this deep abyss where there's no light forming. And now let there be light, the light from the rest of the suns of the solar system are, are here. And he takes the matter at the core of the, of the black hole and he spins part of that into the earth and uses part of it for day four, the sun, moon, and stars, Mercury, Venus, Mars of our solar system. And thus we have a, a Genesis account of creation of our solar system, which uh, has matter that is billions of years old that was there that when God created sometime in the past. Um, Monday's lesson. It says, creation of air and water animals. Last paragraph, it says, uh, few living creatures excite our imagination and admiration more than, a f- than the birds. Birds are truly amazing creatures and are wonderfully designed. Their feathers are lightweight but strong, stiff yet flexible. The parts of a flight feather are held together by a complex set of tiny barbs that provide strong but lightweight bracing. The bird's lung is so designed that it can obtain oxygen as it inhales and also exhales. This provides the high level of oxygen required for powered flight. The result is accomplished, this result is accomplished by the presence of air sacs in some of the bones. These sacs function to sustain the flow of oxygen and at the same time to lighten the body of the bird, making flight easier to maintain and control. Birds are amazingly constructed. That last, that last sentence. Birds are amazingly constructed. That, that's fantastic. I mean, it's true. Think about the complexity of this construct, this, this design, this, this living being. Do you really think that happened by chance with random forces? I mean, I, I, I wished I don't have any small children in my home, but I, I, if I did, I, was, I would have looked for a toy bird to bring with you to show you, a toy bird, and ask you, would we be more complex, this little toy or a living bird? Well, that's, that's a stupid question. Of course it's a living bird. But how many of you would think if we were walking along in the woods and found uh, you know, a, 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 a toy bird down on the ground, we would think, well, you know, I think that probably just got there randomly. It, it, it formed itself over thousands of years, millions of years. It, 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 it defies credibility to think that something as, as complex as, as a bird somehow was able to build itself randomly with no intelligent input just by forces of chaotic nature especially when you understand the law of thermodynamics, that without intentional input into a system, it decays over time. Just amazing. So as we think about birds, though, I got to thinking, what about, what do you think about, we think about creation, think about birds, what do you think about eagles, hawks, and falcons? What do you think they were like before sin? Vegetarians. Yeah. but, but, But think about their... Their design. Or how about vultures, buzzards, and condors? Which are carrion eaters. They eat on the dead flesh of animals. Yes? And that dead flesh is a requirement because if little baby um, predatory birds are raised without 
the marrow of bones, they don't develop wings that can fly. So if we feed them veggie dogs... <laughs> they will not be able to fly. <laughs> However, one can't assume that that's the way it was at creation, because look, at even at Darwin's finches, what happened in, in just one to three generations from the needs that they had for different food sources, they developed... In a very short period of time, a whole different capacity for dealing with the food sources available. So do you think that the birds before the flood were eating carrion? <laughs> After sin, but before the flood, were they eating carrion? Do you think there was a lot of animal deaths going on on a natural basis? Not, not humans going out and hunting and slaughtering uh, and then eating the food themselves, not leaving the carcasses. But do you think animals are dying like they do today? Yeah, so what were they eating for those? What were, the, what were, they, what were those buzzards and condors and things like then? Interesting. Insects. Uh, yes. I was wondering if, they, if perhaps maybe God brought some of those kinds of things post-sin, like after the time, whenever we were going to need a lot of vacuum cleaners. You know? <laughs> yes, back here. There, there could have been hundreds of thousands of species of plants before the flood that we don't have now that these animals ate. Interesting. Okay, I like that idea too. These are all good ideas, all good ideas. Evolutionary theory would point that these animals, uh, the hawks and the falcons, the eagles, the carrion eaters, um, and the uh, point to these animals and the biblical record account and attempt to suggest that there's something wrong with the Bible. Uh, it, uh, it takes millions of years uh, for these species to evolve and into these efficient killing machines with talons and sharp beaks that can tear flesh. Um, and that, uh, therefore, either... Um, evolution happened and they evolved slowly over time and the Bible's wrong, or that, or that God created through evolution, or that God created animals to kill each other. This is what the evolutionists would argue. And um, what would your response be? Kathy already gave one of the responses that we could give, and that is the epigenetics that we have now documented um, that modify, in fact, Darwin's finches, she mentioned. And, w- and if you'd like the re- references for that, they're in last week's notes, I think, or, the, or two weeks ago, I think last week. Last week's notes, the Scientific Journal article references are there, where Darwin's finches um, are known to have these different beaks, some for seeds, some for grubs, some for worms, that were uh, achieved within one to two generations, just from an epigenetic modification. No millions of years of evolution, no DNA sequencing mutations going on. Just because of adaptation to the environment, the beak form and size and shape was able to change in one to two generations because of need. Okay? So that could be an explanation as to why we see some of these modifications in the, in the birds. Yes? God is always creating, so he could have been very involved in that transition. Hmm. Give him credit for that. <laughs> okay, sh- okay, let's take that. Let's take it at face value. It's a theory. Let's look at it. If it's true, though, then are we suggesting that God uses his creative power to create animals that have as their purpose to kill other animals? Think of it more as a cleanup system. But we're talking to the falcons and eagles now. They're not cleaning up. They're killing. They're attacking. They're, they're predatory. Okay, uh, maybe on the maybe on the carrion eaters, we might say, "Oh, God's got a good cleanup mechanism going on here to uh, keep those things." But what about the what about the, the falcons, the eagles, the tigers, the lions, the, the predatory species out there that that their function shows kill or be killed? This is survival of the fittest. Where did this come from? Did God create in nature these principles where we kill others to survive? Did God create that? But that's what we're seeing in these animals, isn't it? How do you explain it? Kathy. Well, I think there's a, another example, too, of uh, cats are considered mandatory carnivorous animals. They have to have meat for the taurine in it to survive. But there are cats who are documented who have survived on a purely vegetarian diet by their choice. So it tells me that somewhere in their lineage there is that genetic capacity to do that, and it is shaped over time. But I think... Generally, just as a comment, we talk about adaptation in more negative terms. But when we, when we, if we turned it around and thought of adaptation in positive terms, think if sin had never entered the, entered the world, what adaptation, adaptation could have done and what we could have become. 
I mean, we have the capacity to adapt positively to positive forces also. No, that, that's exactly right. And, and so what we're looking at is, did God design us with abilities to change based on experience, choice, environment, and so forth? And uh, yes, he did. Here's one explanation for for why we see this motive of survive, survival of the fittest and these, these principles of, of, of kill or be killed. This is out of a, a book called Second Selected Messages, page 288. Christ never planted the seeds of death in the system. Satan planted these seeds when he tempted Adam to eat of the tree of knowledge, which meant disobedience to God. Not one noxious plant was placed in the Lord's great garden, but after Adam and Eve sinned, poisonous herbs sprang up. In the parable of the sower, the question was asked the master, did you sow good seed in the field? Then where did the uh, tares come from? The master answered, an enemy has done this. All tares are sown by the evil one. Every noxious herb is of his sowing. And by his ingenious methods of amalgamation, he has corrupted the earth with tares. Hmm. So, let's jump into Tuesday's lesson with that idea in your mind. Tuesday's lesson with that idea in your mind. The last paragraph states... The phrase, after his kind, then we're talking about the Tuesday lesson, creation of the land animals. Uh, the phrase, after his kind, or an equivalent, should not be interpreted as some rule of reproduction. Rather, it refers to the fact that there were diverse kinds of creatures involved in the, respect, in the respective stories. Some Bible translations use the phrase, of various kinds, which seems more true to the context. Instead of referring to fixity of species, the phrase refers to the diversity of creation creatures created on the sixth day. From the time of the creation, there have been many kinds of plants and animals. Any thoughts about this? That's a good question, and let's see if we can't find some answers to that. Does this mean that, are they suggesting here, you know, there's no fixity of species. Are they then suggesting that one species does evolve into another species over time? So what do you, or, or are they saying that? I think they are saying that. I think the lesson is suggesting that one species can become another species. Hmm. Or is it saying that genetic design allows for recombination within certain limits? Or are there no limits? Does one species change into another species? Can a new species be created through natural selection? It's never been shown yet to happen. What about this? What about can a new species be created through intelligent, purposeful manipulation? Well, here's here's another statement. This is out of First Spirit of the Prophecy, page 78. Every species of animal which God had created was preserved in the ark. The confused species, which God did not create, which were the result of amalgamation, were destroyed by the flood. Since the flood, there has been amalgamation of man and beast, as may be seen in the almost endless variety of species of animals and in certain races of men. Are you uncomfortable with that? Why are we uncomfortable with that? Don't, don't, don't project any racist ideas on to what was said. There was no racism here. What was said? First off, this author says that there were species created by God and there were species that were not created by God. That they were, they were a result of amalgamation. And what does amalgamation mean? To unite as if an amalgam, especially merge into a single body. So take diverse things and merge them into one. This is what amalgamation is. So. Isn't that what we're doing with genetics today by trying to take... We'll get there, Kathy. <laughs> Just hold on a sec. I've got a couple of questions. Where did the dinosaurs come from? Science would tell us that dinosaurs evolved over millions of years and eventually went extinct and an extinction event when an when a, uh, asteroid hit the earth and all this other stuff and an ice age and so forth and so on. But this description above gives us the possibility that dinosaurs and other such uh, animals may be hybrid amalgamations intelligently and purposely uh, brought about by human ingenuity on Earth. Hmm. Now, Kathy's suggesting about what's going on with genetics today. Do you think the idea of amalgamation and dinosaurs being amalgams made purposely by intelligent, intelligent manipulation is reasonable or unreasonable in fiction? 
Well, 1991, geneticists inserted human genes into pigs, and pigs started producing human blood in these research. Living pigs, they don't produce pig blood, they produce human blood because of genetic manipulation. 2003, pig-human chimeras were developed. You know what a chimera is? Chimera is a living animal that has two separate cell lines. Some cells and these piglets, and they were living piglets, some of the cells in the pig were pig cells, some of the cells in the pig were human cells. It's a merger. It's, a, it's, a, it's an amalgamation. A chimera is an amalgamation of a human and a pig. This is what this was. What looked like? It looked like a piglet. Why would it just look like a piglet? Because they took pig embryos that were already developing as pigs, and they inserted some human cells into them, and some of the cells in the pig had human DNA rather than so. It, wasn't an, it was an amalgamation, but it wasn't at an early enough point that the majority of the uh, animal was, was, was human. 2000, uh, 2003, FDA approved glowfish. Anybody heard of glowfish? You can buy them. Glowfish are zebrafish that have a foreign gene derived from jellyfish inserted into the genome that causes it to glow or fluoresce. So it's another amalgamation. 2011, I don't know if you heard this, news services reported that researchers in Great Britain had created 155 human-animal embryos in which animal and human DNA had been mixed, and this was done to develop, uh, I don't know what you call them, human, you know, whatever, for the purpose of research to find cures for disease. But there's 155 now human-animal embryos mixed. Well, there's the, the, as you imagine, when the news got out, there's been a lot of controversy over this, and a lot of funding got pulled. And uh, so, how far they've taken them into development, we don't know. If you wanna, if you wanna just look at some possibilities, we go home on your Google and put in human-animal DNA mix, something like that, and you'll see a whole bunch of research and stuff going on, and you'll see some of the the projected ideas of what this might look like. It's gonna gross you out. <laughs> it's going gonna, it's gonna to growth you out. But the point is, okay, so, so we are doing this now. We're doing it. If we believe the Bible account, prior to the flood, people lived almost 1,000 years. They lived into the 900s. We live into the 90s. They had 10 times the vitality that we have now, 10 times the vitality that we possess today. And many would consider that they also had uh, greater gra- brain efficiency than we have today. So when you put these two facts together, the, the ability of a brain and a vitality of 10 times the vitality we have that nature had then, does it seem plausible or implausible that there was amalgamations of the species going on before the flood? If we're doing it now, I'm sure they were doing it then. <laughs> yes? I've got to throw something not to think about, though, because... You know, all of the relics that are found are no more complex than a bowl and a stirring stick. You know, and so we have so much more at our disposal disposal to do these kinds of things now than they had then. And if you say, yeah, but all that stuff got destroyed in the flood and people were a lot smarter than we give them credit for and we don't know prior to the flood. But then you have to look at the ark. I mean, the ark was described as a big wooden boat. It wasn't some super technologically advanced ship, you know? So, in other words, I have a trouble... So your, your conception is this could only be done through technology with microscopes and, and G- DNA splicing? Well, I, I, that's what it felt like you were proposing. I mean, if you've got a better explanation, I'm... I, I'm thinking with something with 100 times more vitality their intermixing and breeding could be a lot easier. See, a mule, you know what a mule is? Yeah. Okay. I'm suggesting that they were able to, to breed these things naturally because of the 100, 100 times more vitality in their ability to, to sustain life. Okay, well, I'm just, that's good. I want to tease that out. Because yeah. well, thank, well, I appreciate you doing that. I'm not suggesting they were in the, but I, I suspect they may have had some insight into this. I don't know if they had the technology to, to, to do it, but I think that their minds to, could, could conceive of some of these ideas and constructs more than, and I think much of this was lost after the flood. But I, I think the, the 100%, 100 times vitality allowed for amalgamations and inbreeding of things that, that cannot be done now hybridization types of things like that. Yes? If there was dinosaurs before the flood, why weren't they allowed on the ark? 
Every species of animal which God created was preserved in the ark. The confused species which God did not create were a result of amalgamation were destroyed in the flood. Okay. Yeah. Right. yeah. Yes. I was just going to respond to his comment back there, and, and I think that makes a lot of sense, but we also have to look at things like the pyramids, some of the constructs in South America. We don't know how they did it, and they did it with more than a stick and a bowl. I mean, it's a pretty fantastic construction, and it required something that we don't know about. Yeah, we can't actually reproduce what they did, and that was post-flood. Um, science today, human engineering today, cannot actually build a pyramid the way they did. And we don't know how they made those designs that are visible only from the air. Exactly. So there's a lot that we, we don't know about there. Uh, maybe there was a supernatural uh, uh, you know, involvement in some of these things. Um, so next question, though, as we talk about creation... Oh, and this also may give some explanation uh, to the, the fossils of, of the, of the um, dinosaurs, but also may give explanation to things like Neanderthal and some of these uh, subhuman primates supposedly found in various fossil species and so forth. Um, maybe these were part of the amalgamation of man and beast that was going on. Some, some... Why would they be found in the antediluvian man? Yeah, that's a good question. That's a good question. Yeah, I don't know the answer, answer to that. Mm-hmm. I, I believe a lot of discoveries are hid because of it doesn't fit into their preconceived you know, ideas, so they just destroy the evidence or ignore it. Mm-hmm. So, so, so you're saying a lot of discoveries in archaeology and stuff are found, but they don't know how to explain it, so they just catalog it, put it away. I saw that at the end of that movie. Or the ark got put in that big warehouse. Yeah. <laughs> no, but I'm not. I'm not making fun of you. I think there's there's a lot of truth in that. Yeah. I, I I I really do. I think that people will, will, will. I don't know what to make of this, so we'll file this until we can have an explanation for it. I don't know that there's purposeful destruction necessarily, but I do think there may be a lot of cataloging and filing away going on because Is that it just doesn't fit. Us that want to preserve everything that we have have been taught that this is the way God did it, so let's make sure everything fits. So if we don't find something, well, it was hidden. You know, uh, uh, why, why, why can't we find it? Uh, if, if we had some uh, very clever people... I, I think that... I think that themselves, boy, wouldn't yeah. that be the way to do it? Yeah, I think the antediluvians were probably, you know, we're probably burning them in our cars right now. <laughs> I'm not kidding. I'm not kidding about that at all. I think the antediluvian world and its organic matter has become the coal fields and the oil fields, and we're burning them in our cars. That's where they are. Not all of them. Maybe not. And, and the, uh, the Neanderthal, it could be potentially this amalgamation, but it also could be simply some genetic mutation, some, some cretin of some sort that was a very bizarre genetic flaw that, uh, you know, like an elephant man type situation. Um, that's very rare, and uh, and we find an occasional uh, specimen of that. It could also be something along those lines. Yes, they, they had camps where people with um, so-called deformities or deficiencies were outcast from society, and they'd banish them. And they had camps that these people go to, and if they are misshapen or misformed or psychologically damaged, mentally damaged. And, you know, some of these, you know, so they were living in caves and in the woods. And so we find what we think were ancient cavemen, our ancestors, and they were outcasts from society, uh, maybe mongoloids, that type of thing. Interesting. Um, So next question is, we're talking about creation. Um, Potentially some of the uh, things going on with uh, before the flood. Where, Where does the soul come from? When does a soul come into existence? Hmm, when you take the first breath, someone said. So what is, a, what is a soul? Maybe we should define it. What is a soul? Jesus said in Matthew 10, 28, don't be afraid of the one who can destroy the body but can't destroy the soul. The Greek word for soul is? Psyche. Your mind, your individuality. My, Michael. I was going to say this in Genesis. When God breathed into Adam's body, the breath of life, he became a living soul. 
So one option is when he takes the first breath. Um, that's one option. If we clone a human from a skin cell, take a skin cell, take the nucleus out, put it in a, a, de, a, a denucleated ovum, and then put it in a woman and, and have her clone this, this uh, the, the, there's a fetus that develops and a baby is born from a cloning. Does that, does that clone have a soul? Same soul as the other one sharing a soul, or is it a new soul? Hmm. Yes. What does a dead soul look like? <laughs> what does a dead soul look like? Yes, yes. I'm wondering if we're talking about two different definitions of the uh-huh. word soul. I mean, you know, there's expression like a thousand souls were lost in the shipwreck or something, you know, and that's referring to a life, a living being, but then there's that psyche soul, which is probably. That's what I'm talking about individuality, identity, your personhood. If a baby is born without a brain, and they're called anencephalic, do they have a soul? Yes. They breathe. They have a brain stem with a medulla oblongata, so they, they take a breath. Do they have a soul if they have no brain? I see some heads nodding yes. I see some heads nodding no. Um, Kathy? Are they a soul without a brain? Can you have a soul? Can you have an individuality? Can you have an identity without a brain? Does an animal have a soul? Yeah, that was my question. Yes, according to the Bible. Can they have personality? If you ever had a pet, can your pet have personality? Can it have its unique quirks and likes and dislikes and other things? Yes, it can. Can Can an animal love? Yes. yes, it can. Can a baby without a brain do any of those things? Nope. Does it have an individuality, an identity? Does it have the capacity to love? Does it have the capacity to do anything without a brain? No. Can you have a soul without a brain? No. Well, here's one author. This is out of Healthful Living, page 54. The brain nerves which communicate to the entire system are the only medium through which heaven can communicate to man and affect the inmost life. The brain nerves. The only medium. Is there some medium outside the brain for a soul to operate upon. Can you have a soul operating outside a brain? Do you agree with that statement or do you disagree? You see, in in the field of mental health, in the field of Christian mental health, this is a point of debate. This is also a point of, makes a distinction in how one approaches the healing of the mind. See, if you believe that there is an ethereal, mystical individuality that does operate outside the brain that affects how you understand mental health problems and how you approach those problems. If you believe that your identity individuality operates only upon the, the, the template or the construct of your brain, then it also affects how you approach mental health problems and what the solutions are them, or, or for them are. So, do you agree or do you disagree? Do you think there is a, a, a and I, my view, if a baby is born without a brain, there is no soul. There is no individuality, there's no identity, there's no thinking, there's no awareness, there's no love, there's no learning, there's no memory, there's no, there's nothing. It's an empty shell. It'd be similar to Adam's body before God breathed into him the breath of life. Yes, in the back. <clears throat> But that being without a brain does have an essence. They have a what? Essence. An essence of uh, essence of what? However you want to define essence, um, that individual exists, and that existence presents some form of essence. And I think it is not beyond God to act upon that essence in whatever way He chooses, whether it be to save or to interact with that essence or that being. And so I, I, think, I think limiting soul to the existence of personality or a brain is a little more restricted than I, I, would, I would propose. Well, I appreciate that. We'll see if we can tease that out. Yes. As a physician, would you hesitate to put this child to death? There is no child to put to death. Next question. Well, but you know what? Anencephala and symbolic babies mm-hmm. do. They cry. They suckle. They, in many ways, they behave. Uh, do they survive? They, they don't survive very long. That's how long. The, I think so. I've seen where again, and I'm not a pediatrician, but I think I've seen where some of them have survived up to a year or so. I, 
not not the anencephalics. You're talking about some that have more of a brain than than a Is complete anencephalic. Brain stem. Yeah, that's uh, all it is. Yes. I worked in the hospital. We had an anencephalic baby born, and it lived for about three minutes. Mm-hmm. And that was all. Yeah, yeah, because it didn't have any ability. If without a brain, it had no ability to go ahead and breathe something or anything, and there was nothing there. It really, was. it's a, it's a, it's a creature, but it's not a living being. Wendell, I think you're talking about a, a large variation. There's birth defects come in many varieties, and anencephalic is a definition of without a cerebral cortex and functioning, etc. But there is a wide spectrum. Of amount of neural tissue that is there, and some of these children who do not have anything more than a brainstem do indeed live for quite some length of time. That doesn't mean that they have a brain that is functioning and has any neurologic um, inputs, and if you do an EEG or any other diagnostic study on that, you're not going to see much, but that doesn't mean that they cannot function, breathe, or whatever for some length of time. Exactly. Exactly, yes. That's what I was Exactly. So, let's think this through. Has science found any avenue to affect an individual that does not utilize the brain? Can we affect an individual without affecting the brain? Is there an avenue that you can do that? Has science found any evidence of individuality operating outside the brain? Well, consider the analogy of a computer. Can software operate without hardware? Can software operate without hardware? Software is analogous to your individuality, your identity, your personhood. This is what makes the computer unique. And the software can be stored without operational hardware. It can be stored without operating hardware. But it cannot operate without hardware. Likewise, our individualities can be stored without a functioning brain. But they cannot function without a brain. Yes, you want to say something? These um, children that you say are are not souls, uh, will they be in heaven? We don't have any inspired information on that. It's left, it's left unknown. So it's, it's speculative. It's like, will we have sex in heaven? It's not stated. You're free to think either way you want. Maybe, maybe not. My personal view is that God takes individual beings to heaven. People with identity. People with individuality. People have capacity to love and think and, and praise and, and sing and share. And, and he doesn't take Empty shells to heaven. Well, they'd be a new being. They'd have a brain. Like, we're going to be new creations. How is this child that doesn't have a brain less special than this one that does? Because of sin, the child doesn't have a brain. I guess it would define on what what constitutes a child. Some people think that a a, um, conceptus is a child. That a fertilized ovum is a child. Some people believe that. Some people believe, this is the question, when does a soul come into existence? Some people believe and teach that at conception, God creates a new soul. What if you had a child that didn't have a brain? I wouldn't have a child that didn't have a brain because there is no child without a brain. I mean, it's not possible. You can't have a child without a brain. By definition, you can't. You can have a body without a brain, but you can't have a child. A being requires a brain. Pardon? She said you couldn't have a child. You're a man. Yeah, I couldn't have a child at all. I'm a man. Thank you. <laughs> but in my view, you can't have a child. You can have a body, but you can't have a, a being without an individuality or a brain. No, yes. Speaking as a woman in the eyes of the mother who gave birth to that shell, I mean, that I, I, mean, I really resonate with her concept that, that God can make all things new. And, and so, you know, that in her heart, in her mind, does she wish that the child that is now about to die could be placed in her arms? And be perfect on the way to heaven. Yes, and you know, um, anybody know what a molar pregnancy is? Is there a child there? A molar pregnancy. Anybody know what it is? Anybody want to explain it? It's not a child. It's not. It's pieces in there. I've seen that also. Hit it a mole. 
and it's where there's pieces of a person. You might have some bones, some hair, but it's not a formed human. Yeah, yeah, and and the the person who's carrying that until they're told, what do they believe they're carrying? And what kind of emotions are they developing towards what's developing inside them? And when that when that pregnancy is found out to be a molar pregnancy, then there was never a fetus there. Do they experience they lost a child? Have they lost a child? See, this illusion that we get with our emotions, that we've lost something, doesn't mean we've actually lost something. So people who believe they've lost a child when they had a molar pregnancy, they lost an emotional attachment they developed in their imagination to what they were having developed inside them, but there was no child there to lose. You can't lose. It's not just a failed pregnancy. It is a molar pregnancy, which is which is a. Um, I, I don't know. Is anybody can explain better to me than I can? It started without a sperm and an egg, so something came together and formed something. But it was anybody know the embryological pathway that that happens? There's several doctors in the room besides myself. Yeah, well, like the fertilized it's chicken egg. Like it's not a chicken. It is more like a cancer than it is a pregnancy. <laughs> yeah, it's almost like a cancer, and it's uh, it's it's. But there, would anybody argue that's a child? No. No. But the person, the point here is, the person who's pregnant with it believes they have a child. They develop emotions toward it. They believe they've lost their child. Is God going to bring that molar mass to them at the resurrection? No, there's nothing there. There's no genetic material, right? So the point is... Is he yes. going to bring the baby that was born without the brain up there? That's the point I'm making. It had breathed, and when it breathed, it was a living soul as far as he is concerned, I believe. Yeah. And, and you know something? Uh, this, is a, this is an area that's great, and everyone's f- free to form their opinion on their own, and I'm okay with that. I would be happy for God to do that. I would be happy for God to do that. It's, I'm not going to argue against it, but my personal view is there has to be a brain in order for that to, to, ha- to happen. You'll give it one. Yes, in the back. About an empty shell, a person with advanced Alzheimer's, you look at him and he says, uh, that looks like an empty shell. But that's just at one stage of a person's life. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and the difference with the Alzheimer's or the person who's had a massive stroke or the person who's had head trauma or the person who's had a bullet to the brain, the difference there is there was an individuality that was living all up to that point and there's a point where that ceases. There's no different than the Alzheimer's person whose brain slowly fades away would be in a really no different position than the person who suddenly has a heart attack and their brain shuts down and stops working. There was an individuality up until a point, and then it stopped. Yes? I'm just going to give you some support. Yes. <laughs> a few years ago when I first heard you talk about this, I had a really difficult time with it because I was all emotional about it, and I didn't agree with you. But the more time has gone on that I've thought about it and dropped the emotion, I agree with you. So I'm just letting you know. Thank you. <laughs> the reason this is going on, it's really not to, the reason I bring this discussion up is not really to discuss, you know, it's discuss the idea, it's discuss the idea near-death experiences. You see, if we go down this idea that souls operate outside brains, which some of you are arguing for, by the way, whether you realize it or not, then we have near-death experiences. When somebody's brain is, is shutting down near death, then their soul can go on to an afterlife and interact with, with angelic beings, and they can come back and tell us about these things, right? No. no. Why can't they, if, if souls operate outside a brain? Well, I, yes. I, I would feel comfortable arguing that souls... I, I think there's a, the word operate mm-hmm. probably a little strong. I, I, I think this essence that exists in any being that exists uh, if you want to call that the soul, you may be free to call that the soul. I'm comfortable calling that the soul. And so I think it exists, but to operate and interact and, and exchange information with, with, with different aspects of, of the universe is a different, um, is a little bit of a, it's a different, there's a difference between operating and existing. And I am willing to, to accept that the soul exists outside of a brain. And, and what is your definition of soul? Well, it's the essence of, of, of whatever it is. You mean the aroma? <laughs> well, you got a nice essence there. So if I smell you, you exist? I mean, what is it? So we get their smell in heaven? 
I'm not. I'm really trying to press you here. I, I, I want. A, I want a definition that we can lock our teeth onto. And the definition that I've offered is individuality, identity, personhood. It's more than just personality. It's bigger than personality. It is your individuality, your identity. But, but without a brain, there still is some individuality. That person has physical characteristics to them. They have physical uniqueness. They have. There is individuality. So are we talking that the soul exists in the DNA? Their individuality isn't there because we can take it. We can take one cell, and with one cell, I can I can take your DNA, and we can actually catalog the exact DNA sequence that is uniquely you, and it's one in a kind. There's only one. There's only one DNA sequence that's alike. There's no, as far as I know, there's no two exact identical DNA sequences. So does that mean if we do that with that one cell, we have a, we have a soul, we have an individual? Well, then what happens then? What happens then? Do you believe if somebody, let's take somebody that's 19 years old, living, happy, a, college, a high school graduate, so we know they're, they're a high-functioning person, they get in a, they get in a car wreck, uh, excuse me, motorcycle wreck, and, and so there will be no discussion on, on brain death or whatever. They're decapitated. So in my, in my analogy, they're decapitated. So we all agree they're dead, right? Anybody going to argue they're still alive? They're decapitated. Anybody going to argue they're, they're alive? No, they're dead. But they sign their organ donor card. And their organ donor card, they gave their heart, their kidneys, their liver, all these things. Billions of cells with their unique DNA sequence still living for years. Are they alive or are they dead? They are dead. They're but, but their cells with their unique DNA is living. Right. So their soul is not in their cells or their DNA. They're dead. It's in the brain. It's the brain. Yes. You may be asking, when did Adam's soul begin? It wasn't until it was actually in his body and he became a living soul. No, 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 no. There, there's nothing to put in his body. It was when he woke up. Well, yeah, but God breathed into him a living, uh, breathed into him and he became a living soul. What I'm saying is Adam didn't exist before God did that. There That's was right. There was a soul of Adam. But, it, but, but there are some theologies that teach there are living souls living out there in, in, the, in the stratosphere and God takes and plugs them into bodies and, and so the, there was an intelligent living soul out there and God plugged him in and that's when Adam, even, no, no, that's, we're not saying that. Yeah. Yes, I, I, yeah, go ahead. Just, I was going to say it, Seems like maybe we were talking about, and this might not be the right vocabulary, but maybe life force or breath of life versus intelligent existence. You, you guys are really doing good. These are all great questions. <laughs> Why? Because God did put something into Adam. He didn't put his intelligent characteristics into him, but he did put a life of some sort into him with the breath of life. Yes, he did put something into him. And the word in, did anybody have the Hebrew there in Genesis? But I can tell you, the, the breath of life gone into Adam in, in Eden is a different word than the word used uh, when, the, when a person dies in Ecclesiastes, the spirit returns to God who gave it. It's a different word. And the word that is chosen in Ecclesiastes, the spirit returns to God who gave it, is used 377 times in the Old Testament. And it's translated in a variety, this word, a single word, is translated in a variety of ways. One word, one, one way, it's in the Old Testament many times, it's, it's translated as breath. So one could take the superficial view, the breath breathed into Adam in Eden is returned to God at death. And that's it. And close it off there. But, but that's not the same word. They use two different words. The word used in Ecclesiastes, returns to God, is also translating the Old Testament as um, courage, as um, character, as, um, as uh, mind. As, uh, and, so, and so what you have developing here... Hmm, what you have developing here is this idea that God breathed into Adam life energy. Adam lived a life, or we live a life, and we develop our unique personality, our individuality, our identity. And when we die, our individuality returns to God in heaven, safely, secure, and stored. And when he returns, he downloads that into a new body. And this is what you get, and this is where you can bring harmony to Scripture. For instance, many people who believe in the soul sleep have trouble with Thessalonians where Paul says, I do not want you to grieve like men who have no hope about those who have fallen asleep. We will surely not precede those who have fallen asleep because they were worried that, hey, when the Lord comes, we're going to heaven and the ones who've died are not going. So we're not going to precede those. No. The Lord shall, the, when the Lord returns, he will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. And he will bring with him those, and then there's a resurrection. The dead in Christ will rise first, and we which are alive will be caught up together with them, so to be with the Lord forever. And so what he's describing is that when we die, 
You know, in my, my office, I have medical records. I have a computer, and I have a wireless connection to a server where I have electronic medical records. And I'm seeing my patients, I'm working on my medical records. They're instantly being backed up on a server in another room. Now, if you take my, my computer and you shoot it with a shotgun and you take the pieces and throw it on a fire and you melt it, you could say you have just killed my computer. Mm-hmm. I go over to the Mac store and buy a new Mac, go to my server, download the data. What have I just done? I've just resurrected my computer. Okay? What makes my computer unique is not the hardware. That's not what makes it unique. You all have computers that have identical hardware to many other people because we, we you know, bought the same type system. What makes it unique is the software. And, and in the new heaven and the earth, we're going to have same brains, same, same two eyes, nose, you know, different slight variations on it, but we will be physiologically very, very similar. What makes us unique is not just a physiologic appearance. What makes us unique is the software. And this is what Christ said when he said, don't be afraid of the one who can destroy body, hardware, but can't destroy soul, psyche, individuality. That's safe and secure. They can't touch it. And so everything going on in your life right now that you're choosing to, uh, is, is being backed up on a heavenly server called the Lamb's Book of Life. And when he comes, he brings his heavenly servers with him, and he downloads the individuals into their new bodies, and they live again. This is how I, I understand. There's harmony through it all. Way in the back, somebody online. You have 28 viewers, and just as you were talking, I had about seven comments come in. Okay. Now. Okay, Gene, the character that we develop is part of the soul, our individual identity beyond just the physical, such as DNA. Eric, I just got here, but I believe we both... We have both physical and spiritual DNA. The spiritual DNA is our identity that is kept in heaven at death. I disagree with this computer analogy. I would imply, it would imply there are two copies of me or more. There is only one copy of me. It exists in me while I'm alive and is moved to heaven at death. The spiritual DNA. Okay. I read them all. Uh, Eric was the main speaker here. Um, so what about near-death experiences? Let me just run through that with you for a second. Do you know that the near-death experiences have been reported for um, over 2,000 years? And 20% of people who suffer a heart attack and are revived, report it, it's one in five, report a near-death experience. Um, but interestingly enough, um, you don't have to be near-death to experience a near-death experience. 1990 study at the University of Virginia Health Science Center in Charlottesville, uh, 58 people who had experienced near-death experiences, when they actually looked at their physical health condition that brought on that, were discovered that more than half did not have a, a near-death experience. It would have been fine without any medical treatment at all. Such things as simple as fainting, some people had near-death experiences. There are many theories about what caused near-death experiences, hypoxia, lack of oxygen in the brain, which could trigger t- temporal lobe seizure-like events, which could cause these uh, Events, hypotension, uh, endorphins and keflins, brain produced uh, brain chemicals, uh, low blood sugar, and other metabolic processes could contribute. Um, one theory out of the University of Kentucky is that these are REM intrusions. REM intrusions, REM is your dream sleep, and this is a known uh, condition that you can experience while you're awake. You can experience dreams while you're awake. This is called REM intrusion. And they're experienced as hallucinatory like events, and while you're experiencing them, you're paralyzed and can't move. And it's quite frightening for people who experience REM intrusion. And so one theory is these are REM intrusions that happen. But the one I like the best was a study done in 1994, published in 1994, uh, in a clinic from a clinic in Germany. And they, and they documented how volunteers made themselves faint through a combination of hyperventilating, standing up, and holding their breath. Those three things. Just hyperventilating, stand up, hold your breath, and they would faint. Many of them experienced euphoric, near-death-like ex- sensations, including floating, out-of-body experiences, entering other worlds, and encounters with supernatural beings. This is thought to be due to activation of the vagus nerve, which stimulates the brainstem and causes the near-death experiences. And, of course, this would explain why one in five get this uh, during a heart attack, because there's a lot of vagal nerve stimulation going on during a heart attack. The Bible is silent on near-death experiences and even real-death experiences as far as Lazarus was dead, he's raised back, and he had a lot of stories to tell, didn't he? No. In every case of scripture, somebody who was dead and was raised from the dead, there is no account of anything that they have to tell while this was going on. So my view is that near-death experiences are actually physiological brain-failing symptoms and not spiritual encounters in another world. So, 
And uh, Wednesday's lesson, man, we, I didn't realize we were going to spend so much time on that. Wednesday's lesson um, is, is uh, let's see, second paragraph. Oh, and this is where we really wanted to spend our time. So, uh, this is about the Sabbath. And the, and the lesson says, um, the Hebrew word, let's see, the Hebrew word for rest is uh, Shabbat, uh, which is closely related to Sabbath. It indicates a cessation of labor upon completion of a project. God was not weary and in need of rest. He finished... He was finished with his work of creating, and so he stopped. God's special blessing rests on the seventh day. It is not only blessed, but also sanctified, which carries the idea of being set apart and specially devoted. Thus, God gave special significance to the Sabbath in the context of the relationship between God and humans. And then, uh, so God gave special blessings uh, on the Sabbath. What is the special blessing? What is it? Tell me, what is it that you have on Sabbath that you don't get on day six and day one? Rest, she said. Okay. The lesson says here, thus God gave special significance to the Sabbath in the context of relationship between God and humans. And the last paragraph states, God rested from his acts of creation and devoted devoted his time to relationships with his creatures. If this is true, first off, it is true that God is relational and he loves relationships with us. True? Everybody agree? Does this separate the Sabbath from the other days? Does God only relate to us on the Sabbath? Are, are, are Sunday-keeping friends who love to go and spend a, a day with God on Sunday, does God say, sorry, I'm busy? No. So does this definition, is this, is this the blessing? You can only be blessed in relation. Did God come to them only in the cool of the day on Sabbath? No. Or the cool of the day every day? So this idea of relationship, to me, is not what, while, while we certainly experience relationship with God on Sabbath, it doesn't separate and, and set the Sabbath apart as a special day because of relationship. You can have a relationship with God on every day. In fact, we should have a relationship with God on every day, shouldn't we? Yes. Okay, so I don't find this definition, this reason, um, um, compelling to me. What about the idea of rest? What about the idea of rest? So our Sunday-keeping friends who rest on Sunday... Their bodies won't be rejuvenated and they won't recover. They don't get the, the physiological and, and or even spiritual blessing of resting in their relationship with God on Sunday. That doesn't happen for them. You can't rest any day other than Saturday. If you miss Saturday, you don't get any rest. So rest doesn't separate it either. I don't like these. That, I, I'm not arguing you can't get those blessings, but I'm saying it doesn't make it unique. And we're looking for something that sets it apart. It's set apart. Okay, how? Why? Yes. It's, it's what it means. It's what it says about God that sets it apart from everything else. It's the freedom and individuality he gives us to think. So the, the characteristics of God that... I like where you're going with this, and we're, we're running short of time, so that's why I'm moving kind of fast, because I want to get this comment at the end. It says in the, in the green at the bottom, it says, God commands us to give one-seventh of our lives to the remembrance of the act of creation. I think this through. This reminds me, of my, my wife and I are at church one week, and the, uh, you know, at the beginning of the service, there's always this, uh, the introit, and then there's this opening prayer. And the pastor gives the opening prayer this week, and he says, in the prayer, he's praying, we're on our knees, we're all praying, God, we're here today, not for the special music. Not to visit with friends. We're not even here to hear the sermon. We're here for one reason, one reason only. You have commanded us to be here. <laughs> really? My, I, I, seriously, my wife and I both, our eyes popped open and we looked at each other. <laughs> really? We're command, commanded? I, I, I command every one of you to love me. <laughs> more than you love you. I command it. Does that, do you just want to love me more now? Or does that go like, ooh, are you kidding me? Okay, you can't command love. It can't be commanded. The Ten Commandments, they're the, they're the, they're the, the principles of love, right? Can't be commanded. Can't do it. So something, something's amiss here. This idea of commanded to remember. Use one-seventh of your time remembering creation. Does that suggest that our Sunday-keeping friends can't remember creation on Sunday? I still have problems with this. God honors them as much as he does us. The Sabbath. Boy, I had so much to go through, guys. So much. Um, when was the Sabbath? The, the Sabbath commandment was given in Exodus. To whom? To who was it given? Was it written to the world? 
No. To slaves coming out of Egypt. Why were there ten plagues before they came out of Egypt? What were those ten plagues? Was there a purpose? Was it punishment? God is going to make those people pay. Is that what was going on? Why ten plagues? One God from another God. Say that louder. Distinguishing one God from another. Those ten plagues, each one of them was a specific plague to expose the fallacy and, 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 and impotence of the Egyptian gods. It, were, it was that one God after another God after another God was being exposed. They worshipped the frog. Imagine worshipping the frog and suddenly have so many frogs that your, your whole, you can't even walk because they're, they're, they're ankle deep in dead frogs. It's like, this is my God and I've got to sweep him up and throw him out? Okay, this was the purpose of these plagues. And so... The, 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 the 400 years of slavery, the, there was a lot of confused thinking about God. And so God says, remember the Sabbath. I am your creator. Remember me. But also remember in Deuteronomy that they got a second set of Ten Commandments. And the Sabbath was given again. And it was given, remember that you were slaves in Egypt and that the Lord God brought you out with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm. So should we say that God has commanded us to spend one-seventh of our time remembering we were slaves in Egypt? It's part of the commandment. I, 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 I don't want anybody to think I'm undermining the Sabbath. I am not. But we need, to, we need to present it in its right light. Then it is more compelling. It is more power. In its right light is what? The context when the Sabbath came into existence. Was the Sabbath always in existence? Yes. Yes? On the earth. No. Historically, universally, eternally always in existence. No. no. No, it came into existence when this earth was created. It's, a, it's measured by this rotation of this earth in relationship to the sun that was created on day four. That's its measure. That's how it's measured. Sunset to sunset. Why was it not in existence prior? What else wasn't in existence prior to the Sabbath? A conflict over God's trustworthiness was not in existence historically. And it wasn't until the questions about God's character were raised that it became necessary for God to demonstrate with action his true nature and character. See, day one through six, we, we learn, and it's revealed, something that really was never in question, and that is God has power. Lucifer never said God doesn't have power. Day one through six shows God is powerful. What was questioned was the character of the one who wields the power. You can't trust him with it. He coerces. He, he intimidates. He punishes. He enforces. He commands. He demands. And what day seven reveals is the character of the one who wields the power. He presents the truth in love and he leaves you free. I rest my case, guys. Consider for yourself. Consider for yourself. I rest. No pressure, no coercion. You come up with your own mind. Look at the evidence we've given. And the existence of the Sabbath each week is proof. Its very existence proves Satan lied. Because if God were the kind of being Satan says he is, there would be no weekly Sabbath. There would be no day of rest. There would be no day for reflection and contemplation. There would be no day of freedom, which is what it is. And one of the ways that the devil attacks the Sabbath is he attacks it through religious systems that turn the day of freedom into the day of slavery, the day of don'ts, the day of can'ts, the day of must-nots, the day of, of shackling yourself with restrictions that you are most enslaved and most confined on this day of any other day of the week. And so you won't be willing to heal a man on Sabbath. Because God has commanded that you observe it, and we must obey the command over all others, and we will not heal this man. Why are you healing this man on Sabbath? So he makes it the day of slavery, and we then take the Sabbath, and we use it as an arbitrary test of obedience for an arbitrary God. And Satan takes this beautiful day created for the freedom of God's creation, showing what a magnanimous character God has, that he presents truth and love, leaves us free, and he twists it into this day of enslavement where we will force people or else. And this is what's happened. And we give these, these superficial reasons to try and cloak an arbitrary test that is often presented. You know, our God is amazing. And he loves us and he gives us freedom. And the Sabbath is proof each week. That's why Satan hates it. And so we come apart. Why? Not because he commanded it. Because we love him. And we love the evidence he's given. And we love his methods. And so a true Sabbath observer, a true Sabbath observer is not, is not identified by avoiding work on a particular hours of each week. That's not a Sabbath observer. Those who put Christ on the cross wanted him down so they could go do that. Were they true Sabbath observers? No, a true Sabbath observer has the law written on the heart 
which is the new covenant experience, and they practice the methods embodied in the day. And this is the blessing. This is what makes it holy. It is they are lovers of truth, God's methods, presented in love, leaving people free. They live the godly life. That's what a true Sabbath observer looks like. And in the end of time, there will be a a religious group that comes that will tell you, you can neither buy nor sell. We will coerce you with pressure unless you operate our way. This is the antithesis of Sabbath. Sabbath is about freedom. Presenting truth and love, leaving people free. Gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you so much that you have, have presented truth to us in ways that we can understand. You leave us genuinely free because, we, because love only exists in an atmosphere of freedom. Lord, we thank you that you've given us diversity of thought, diversity of personality, idea, identity, individuality. Lord, may we come together in unity of love. May we respect those who see, see, see things differently as we're all growing and learning. But may we come to the, to the realization of your methods and principles, truth, present in love, leaving people free. That we might share this reality with others, that they might see it, embrace it, and practice it, and that you might come soon. We pray in your holy name. Amen.